What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I am your host, Gavin J. Gallagher. And on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset, your behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. So here we are, guys, on episode number 48. And last week I was speaking with my friend and fellow Irishman, Kevin MacDonald. This week is a real property investment masterclass. I am speaking with Birmingham-based property investor, Adam Lawrence. And um, it's a really, really good uh, episode. I think you're going to enjoy and get an awful lot out of it. Before I get into that, I just wanted to give you a couple of quick updates. And the big update is that my YouTube channel, Gavin J. Gallagher, has gone live. I launched it last week with two videos and um, wow, it has really taken off. I've added about 50 subscribers in just seven days. So it's, it's particularly fast growing at the moment, which is great to see. And in case you're just wondering, why would you bother watching YouTube when you can already just listen to this podcast? Well, it's different. I've designed these videos to give you all of the wisdom and advice kind of just condensed into seven or eight minutes. And obviously you come here for the podcast conversations. They're kind of, you know, up to an hour long. Um, With the YouTube videos, they're super focused. So it's for maximum impact in the minimum of amount of time. So go and check it out, Gavin J. Gallagher. And if you do go in there, hit subscribe, give the video a thumbs up and leave a comment. I'd love to hear that you've come across from the podcast. It's just great to identify different um, subscribers in there when when I sort of see a comment. It's interesting to know whether or not you've learned about the video or about the channel from the podcast or if you just stumbled upon it through YouTube or whatever. So I always love to receive comments in there. In terms of other updates, I thought I'd just mention that um, this podcast now also has its own YouTube channel. So I've, I've, I've created a Behind the Facade podcast channel on YouTube and I'm um, at the moment I've just been putting up the episodes, these very episodes that you're listening to on whatever other device you've got. But I'm actually going to be putting up the full length videos of the conversations that I've had with all of my guests for the last 12 months. So if anyone is interested in um, seeing the actual conversation, um, it's, it's they're all Zoom calls, basically. So um, maybe, maybe not of interest to you, but you're going to find them in there. I haven't put any up yet, but you're going to start seeing them getting in there. So you might want to go and join that um, channel as well. Just subscribe and it'll be in a dedicated playlist. I'm going to create like video conversations or something like that. While on the topic of Behind the Facade, I thought I should also mention that we now have our very own Behind the Facade Club on Clubhouse. And I am going to be doing a sort of probably a weekly live uh, conversation in there. I'll be inviting you guys in. So for maybe for a Q&A or just, you know, I might bring certain guests on or something like that. So still trying to figure out what works in Clubhouse. There's an awful lot of stuff, stuff going on out there. So I don't want to overload people. And, you know, at the moment there's you can basically turn on Clubhouse at any time of the day and there's somebody talking about property somewhere. So it's pretty good. By the way, I have seven free invites to give away to anyone who is not yet on Clubhouse but would like to be. So just get in contact with me. Probably the best way to do that is to go to the Facebook group and join up as a member. Um, that's called the Behind the Facade Community where you can um, you, you can just reach out to me directly in there. It's probably the best place. And lastly, I've got the Behind the Facade group now on Meetup app, um, which is that event 
uh, it's like an event app. And uh, the reason I've done it is because I can actually, believe it or not, I can see an end to lockdown uh, in the near future. And I'm thinking that when live events start to um, to get kind of put together and uh, physical in-person meetups and stuff, this will be the place where I put those things down. So go and check out. If you're not on Meetup app, well then, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll find other ways of contacting you. But the Meetup app is a good way of just putting down in the calendar that there's a meeting coming up. Right, getting into the main event, my conversation with Adam Lawrence. What's interesting here is the different approaches to investment by different people. Last week, when I was speaking with Kevin, he was talking about using these very creative techniques to structure deals when you have little or no money. This week, Adam and I discuss the approach that he took and the strategies that he used that allowed him to grow his portfolio of properties to now over 430 properties in his portfolio. And he's done it in just 10 years, which is pretty incredible. And last year, when I came across Adam for the first time, he was just at about 200. So he has managed to double the size of his portfolio in the year of the COVID pandemic and all of the lockdowns and all that. So it's just incredible what he's managed to do. And it's one of the reasons why I thought it would be super valuable to bring him onto the show. Now, I have spoken before about the importance of relationships and your reputation. I talk about my six oars, relationships and reputation being two of those. And Adam is walking proof of just how important this is. His reputation as a man of, not just a man of integrity, but also an extremely shrewd operational guy. And so investors seek him out. So he's not out there banging the drum looking for money. They're coming to him. And, um, and that's how he's able to grow his portfolio at the rate that he's able to do that. And what really stood out for me is the fact that Adam got into this game by accident back in 2008 when he became an accidental landlord. He was not, he, he says himself, he's not a property guy. He like, he can't even wire a, a plug, as he says. And uh, so everything he's achieved in the last decade is self-taught, simply down to grind. So it's uh, this really is a masterclass, in my opinion, and it's a long one. So without further ado, my conversation with Mr. Adam Lawrence. Adam Lawrence, great to meet you. How are you? I'm really well, thanks, Kevin. How are you? I'm good. We were just uh, chatting there before we hit the uh, record button, and I was saying that I, our paths crossed because... Rod Turner of the of the Rodcast asked you, um, he 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 interviewed you, and I was asked to appear on uh, Rod's um, podcast a few weeks later, and I kind of thought, oh, I better go and check out, you know, the Rodcast. What's this all about? And I and I heard you speaking to Rod, um, and I was thinking to myself, bloody hell, that's going to be a hard act to follow. <laughs> so <laughs> I am really thrilled to have you here today, Adam. It's a, it's a great pleasure to have you on board, and. Um, for the purpose of just, uh, we actually have quite an international audience listening uh, here. So for the purpose of the people who would never have heard of Adam Lawrence, I know you're well known in the UK property circles, but for those who wouldn't know, can you just give us a quick summary of who is Adam Lawrence? Sure thing, yes. So um, pretty non-vanilla career background, really. But for were my stripes, I suppose, I did some time in finance and wealth management. Um, and the rest of the time I've been gainfully entrepreneurially employed um, doing one or two or a hundred things at once really like typical typical serial entrepreneur really um, so I've been in property seriously for 12 years now 
Um, I was an accidental landlord back in 2008, so pretty typical sort of story. Made all my mistakes in one go, bought a new built property, top of the market, 06, uh, with the wrong partner at the time. I'm not sure you can make many more mistakes than I made there. Um, we parted company in 08, and so the only realistic way around that was to, to let the property out. Um, found out I was getting pretty much tucked up, really. Um, so became uh, a more active landlord and then picked up another property without being too sort of clever about it, really, and thought, you know, the, 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 great, the great financial crisis sort of paved the way a little bit. The interest rate had gone through the floor. There seemed to be lots of opportunities around. So I, I live in Birmingham in the West Midlands. Um, I was born and raised there, although I lived in Switzerland for a couple of years when I was working in wealth management in Geneva. Um, and so had the local, the local area knowledge, had the opportunity, could get to a lot of rooftops within about an hour's drive of my house. Um, and decided I would follow a sort of comparatively high yield but fairly vanilla strategy. So I've stuck with um, HMOs at the start and then buy to let much more seriously going forward, including um, an element of social housing in that. And then as I've sort of graduated a bit, I've also picked up a few bits of commercial property along the way. Interesting. Well, we're going to get into all of that today. And um just, I mean, to kind of bring us back and paint a picture, you're from the Solihull area of Birmingham and um, you, you, you went to Oxford University. Um, let's just go back to that. Like you went, you left university. What was the first job that you kind of did leaving university? <laughs> That's a great question. So before I was about, so I, I, went, I went off to Switzerland when I was around about 26. What was like 25, I think I was. And before before that, the post-uni, um, I actually played online poker for a while and just about managed to pay the bills doing that. That was the really early days of, of internet poker. And I also, um, I, I worked a, a couple of casual jobs because I really haven't found what I, I thought I was going to be an investment banker. And then I just completely fell out of love with that idea and was kind of left a bit void, really. I didn't really have a backup plan. Um, so I worked a couple of casual jobs as well. And also, um, I, I mean, I paid my way through university, um, you know, rents and fees and things like that by, by playing fruit machines um, and cards with, with some of the guys at university. So I, uh, I, I worked out ways of making that pay for me. And then I, I graduated onto online sports arbitrage trading. So a bit like baby version of, of the stock market, really fairly unsophisticated at the time because it was the real early days of internet betting. So yeah. I used to bet um, fairly significant sums to make relatively small profits, but those profits were locked in uh, and guaranteed before an event would start. So um, those were the days before bookmakers would just close you down at the drop of a hat because obviously that sort of business is not business that they want yeah. and it's quite dangerous business for them. Um, and I made I made some money doing that. But then the, the opportunity came up to go, to, go out to – so a bit of a career change, really, from um, online 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 punter to uh, to wealth management. Well, there was there were some similar, probably more similarities than the wealth management industry would like me to admit, Gavin. If I'm honest with you. Yeah, yeah, I was just thinking that. I I spent it's funny. I I lived in Spain for a period of time, and uh, 
and my kids went to this international school and the her, the kids that were in her class and my daughter's class in the international school they were all the big names of online poker gambling all that kind of, I mean the big names that you kind of see you know yeah, 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 yeah. and all of their kids were actually in so I used to have a card game with all of these like, you know, famous names in that space, you know, and uh, and one of them actually didn't know how to play cards. And, and he was making like literally millions on the game um, online, but he didn't know how to play it actually in real life. So it was hilarious kind of figuring this stuff out. That is, that is funny. That is I, funny. I, knew, I knew sports betting was in there somewhere and it's going to be an interesting conversation for one of our listeners today. I was speaking to somebody during the week who um, who's actually doing something in online gaming and stuff. And uh, and he's actually was he was talking to me about building a portfolio. So I kind of said, listen out for this interview today now, because building a pro- property portfolio with a sports background, sports betting background is is kind of in that space. Um, so tell me about this time in Geneva. You were there for a couple of years. And uh, and what was it like just to get out of the UK for you? Oh, it was it was fantastic. And it was, you know, the Swiss financial market at the time and, and advice and, uh, you know, consultancy and wealth management and all the rest of it was like it still is really, it was light years ahead of the UK. So they were already moving towards a much more client focused model, um, low cost funds, uh, all the stuff that you've seen sort of take over, whereas the, the, the old IFA commission model was still sort of rampant in the UK in the mid sort of 2000s. Mm. Um Lovely in that, you know, had a, a great job, great place that was it, job included, an apartment to live in, bills paid for. That was fantastic. Fair bit of flexibility as long as I worked pretty hard, which I so I still got those investment banking hours in, just not in the investment banking industry one way or another. Um, phenomenally expensive. I remember it being about nine quid for a beer 15 years ago. So I don't know what it costs now, but it must be eye-watering. Um, but I was putting so many hours in that realistically, I didn't see too much of the, uh, of the outside really. Um, you know, weekends, weekends were good fun. The air quality, the quality of life there was spectacular, but when it came down to it, and I really wanted to get myself onto the property ladder. It was a choice between a 700,000 euro flat in Servette, which is not the best part of Geneva by any stretch of the imagination. Um, or a £250,000 house in the UK that was a brand new build and all, all singing, all dancing in a, in a pretty decent part of the UK. So I thought, well, you know, can I make Arbitrage. this work? Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. And, um, you know, it's all very well earning the big bucks, but if you are then commensurately paying out the big bucks, <laughs> what, what, what do you actually get to see out of it? You know, and I, I think I went, I went to Geneva with a really low level of financial sophistication because you know the old story. They don't, they don't teach us that at school in the UK. You know, I didn't really have that guidance from, from anybody else or I'd never sort of sought the right person out to teach it to me. So I was in Geneva. I was consuming all these materials, books, seminars, all this sort of stuff because I was a portfolio builder as in a you know, that, that was my, my role as a, as a portfolio and eventually, you know, portfolio relationship director. So I was constru- I was getting involved in the mathematical side of it because I'd done a, quite a lot of mathematical stuff. And obviously the, the arbitrage betting is highly mathematical as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was great fun. Um, but I, I felt I got to the point where I couldn't go much further. Like I said, I wanted to get on the ladder. I saw a massive opportunity back in the UK for actually better I start, I'd started by that point to get banned by quite a lot of online bookmakers as I was saying earlier on 
So um, my brother had actually finished his university course and I corrupted him and persuaded him that me and him should, should team up and start um, an, a bricks and mortar cash betting operation. So he would go around the shops and I would sort of pull the strings from, from the desk. He would put the bets on. I would lay them off. Um, we would make some money that way. And we, we expanded that operation to go quite a bit further. And that sort of took us from when I came back from Geneva, which was 06, right up to so I, I blew through the financial crisis without too much exposure to anything apart from that one property wow. um, and of course gambling when the economy downturns gambling goes on an upturn so 2009 was one of the best years that i would had um, and in about sort of 2010 20 early 2011 a few things changed for me got married had my first son um, I was living a lifestyle where I would bet on US sports as well so Obviously, the time difference made that quite. I used to have an old Nokia phone with the old. Do you remember the old? Doo, 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 yeah, doo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I used to have that. It used to go off at two o'clock in the morning sometimes. And my wife is a very understanding woman. But when we got to first baby stage, she said, "You know, that's going to have to stop, don't you?" And I was like, <laughs> "I get, I get that." You know, so I needed a complete, complete focus shift. And I, I saw the opportunity in property and just thought, "What's not to like here?" After the market readjustment, what's not to like really? Yeah, yeah, huge adjustment. And just, I mean, before we get on to that, I was going to ask, were there any fundamental lessons you picked up in the wealth management industry that, that you oh, applied, that you brought with you? Yeah, Gavin, I always say I've, I've invented absolutely nothing. You know, there are some geniuses out there. Tim Berners-Lee invented the World Wide Web. You know, I've invented nothing. I've read some stuff about Warren Buffett. I've read some, some great case studies when I did my MBA. I, I, everything I've done, I've taken from uh, from somewhere. And Wealth management, number one, diversification. I mean, absolutely. Um, number two, a really interesting one was I, I saw what people's attitude towards taxation was and I saw how it would make them make quite what I would call foolhardy decisions, really. So we had quite a number of clients who, if you said to them, would you like 10% returns but pay 40% tax or would you like 5% returns tax-free? They would rather have the 5% tax-free, even though it was a lower return. Yeah. And, and some of that, as I get older, I understand some of the rationality of that because these guys felt they paid enough tax. You know, that was the bottom line. They had huge, huge tax bills anyway. And they just thought, you know what, I, I, I contribute enough. And, and then, of course, that sort of leads you towards social impact investing and things where the returns are not the only uh, the only fruit, which of course it wasn't really a thing in 2006 that I, or 2005 that I remember anyway. Mm, yeah, but yeah, big lessons, really, big lessons. So, when did you? When was the decision? I mean, you, you mentioned that you were an accidental landlord. When did you make the decision to become kind of seriously looking at this? So, early early 2011, as that sort of shift came, lifestyle shift for me. Um, Things have got a lot harder in our, our bricks and mortar um, gambling op as well. So it was all uh, a matter of timing, really, I suppose. Um, and property networking in England at the time wasn't much of a thing, but it was a thing. You know, um, there, there were meetings going on and I decided my dad was still working at the time and he worked. Uh, he was a tax and trust advisor. So he said to me, so, well, you know, you're interested in this stuff. Why don't you come along? to this networking meeting. I'd like to try and get a bit of business out of it. And so I went along to a few with him, found a few that I liked, found a few that I didn't like and thought this is a good place to learn. So I'm, I'm inherently super impatient, like 
many entrepreneurs, you know, and I made a promise to myself. <laughs> I made a promise to myself that I would not do anything. I wouldn't pay for any courses, wouldn't do anything like that. Six months just learning. And that felt like 20 years to me, you know, absolutely. But I did it. I dug my hands in my pockets. I paid my 20 quids to get into the meetings or whatever. And I just drank in the knowledge. And I met some really great people there as well. Um, people who were, you know, a fair way down the track, who were happy to spend a bit of time, just really enthusiastic about property, love property, love what they do, can talk about it for hours and hours, just like just like we can, I'm sure, Gabby. Yeah, all day long. Um, tell me this then, when you got, I mean, so it was, it was starting to come onto your radar. And um, I mean, when I, when I listened to you on the broadcast back in, it's, it's a year ago now, you had 200 properties at the time. And I understand you've kind of gone to double that. But let's go back to just the first couple of transactions when you made that decision that you were going to get serious about it. Like, what was your first deal or two deals that, um, and, and what was the process that you started to go through? Great question. So I, I decided I wanted to partner with people because I thought I, I, I thought I would struggle. Look, from, from my days in wealth management, also when I worked in, in the sort of arbitrage field as well, I knew that I wasn't strong at everything. And I don't really think that anybody is, to be honest. And so I thought, right, supplant my weak points with, with partners. So I found people who were experienced in it, had bought well in the past, had done HMO, which at the time had really attracted my attention because, oh, look at those headline fantastic yields you can get. You know how it works. Um, and there were still areas at the time, sort of 2011, 2012, where there, there weren't many HMOs at all. You know, there were an absolute handful of them. And there were whole towns where there was demand and there was very little supply or the supply that there was was really really poor standard really poor quality so it really was sort of very low hanging fruit so i partnered with a couple of guys who built a portfolio of 10 properties themselves of course me looking back thinking i had two was thinking wow these guys have got 10 that's amazing you look at people who are ahead of you don't you and then uh, luckily because of my, my my background and and also what my dad did for a living i structured a joint venture such that i was quite well protected so that the downsides wouldn't affect me too badly and the other guys involved would get paid based on their performance and hitting the figures and the targets that we set ourselves. I knew nothing then about the challenge of trying to revalue properties up when you've bought them at a keen price. I knew nothing about building. I knew nothing about renovation. I still can't wire a plug. I'm not proud of that, but it's just that's not where my skill set lies. Absolutely. Um I didn't have a clarity of vision around the whole strategy. I thought, look. Yes, you can get a discount. What sort of discount can you get? I don't really know. I'm going to find out. Financially, I was somewhat sophisticated, but still had a long way to go. Refurb-wise, not sure. Management just thought it was easy back in those days. You know, what management, you just, they just pay the rent, don't they? You know, so that, that, that was all a bit of a baptism of fire. We managed to source some funds from somewhere. I had a little bit of money to put in as well. As I say, I'd structured it so I was protected. And we bought a couple of HMOs. Uh, a flip project, um, a house that had been illegally converted into two flats. That was my first sort of taste of the legal side and the paperwork side and all the rest of it. And then a couple that were just sort of vanilla buy to lets. Then I was completely out of money. The other person we'd approached for money was completely out of money. And I always say that's when I really started to learn because yeah. once you're tapped out, you know, that was bringing in a relatively small amount of money each month. 
And at the same time, I had an opportunity to do an MBA with a full scholarship. So that came up, that was 2012, Warwick Business School. You know, I just couldn't turn down, supposed to be 30Ks worth of fees. And I thought, well, this is a brilliant, brilliant opportunity for networking, for raising funds, for building the business, you know. Um, And so I I went and did that. That was a 12-month course. So I wasn't actually out of the game during that 12 months. I did have a little bit of money left that was saved up. But I then needed an armchair solution because the MBA was all-consuming, you know. So it was my first experience of getting involved with a portfolio building service, of which, of course, there are a whole number of them out there, and seeing the pros and cons of that and, uh, and sort of working through that. And that didn't work out very well for me, unfortunately. But again, you pay for your education one way or another, don't yeah. you? you know? <laughs> that, that was it. 2011, 2012, that was a period when certainly in the Irish market, the prices were through the absolute floor. I mean, there was nothing lower. You couldn't really get much lower. So you must have been spoiled for choice in terms of, you know, opportunity. How did you decide like where you were going to buy um, and, you know, what were your kind of criteria that you were looking for? Yeah, super question. So I I live in a relatively low yielding pocket of South Birmingham. um, And I was always quite married to the idea of yield and cash flow. You know, again, taking from those other business case studies and books and all the rest of it, cash flow is the biggest thing that scuppers a business, isn't it, ultimately? So I was quite married to getting high yield. And there were quite a lot of choices around my local area. I went for a, a bit of a mixture. So one where there was a significant amount of infrastructure investment going in and there were really, really good motorway links. And this, this particular town um, had a, a quite a wealthy affluent city nearby. So it was a bit of a starter town, feeder town for the city. Mm. And you could buy under 100K GBP at the time um, and get decent yields, you know, 7% gross yields on single lets. Um, and I just thought that there's an inevitability about the geography. John Lewis had just made a big investment there, how things have changed in, in 10 yeah. years. Um, M&S had just put a huge investment in it. I know a little bit about the sort of due diligence and market research those guys will do before they go into an area. So rather than even pretending that I could do that level of work, I just thought, well, I'll just think about I'll piggyback what they're doing. You know, you know, the Waitrose effect, but in a slightly, Waitrose tends to come a bit later in the chain, does it's a bit late by then normally. Yeah. Um, so, so I was piggybacking other people's, uh, big big companies' um, decisions. And, I, and also my criteria at the time was, I know I've got to travel a bit to do this. I want to start within 45 minutes of home. And then as confidence grew and I worked on sort of remote management systems and things like that, I then went, you know, an hour and a half, two hours Scotland, mainland UK, and um, I'm stuck at mainland UK at the moment, but, you know, I wouldn't write anything off at the moment. (laughs) Well, I think actually that's probably a good idea because my forays into international markets didn't plan out. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a a common, I I, I always hear one or two things, Gavin, either, yeah, I I got my money back and I was lucky, or yeah, yeah, a lot of effort and a lot of heartache, unfortunately. There's always stuff that you learn after the event and you kind of go, why didn't I even know that that was an issue, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, but you're, you know, your home system and the fact that you've got people all around you that are telling you, you know, that won't work, this won't work and stuff. When you're in a foreign market, you're just, you're, you're just ripe to get kind of either ridden or you're just going to make a silly, simple mistake that nobody else yeah. can make in that market. Oh yeah. If you haven't got an exceptional 
team there, you know, unless you either drop really lucky, you've got a fantastic introduction, you know. Yeah. I mean, I'm also obviously lucky being in the UK, we've got a really solid legal system and the land reg works really well. So that obviously is what attracts some of the, the money that comes into the UK market as well. And that obviously has, has fed a lot of that growth, especially down in the south and southeast where I'm not really involved. Um, has fed a lot of that growth between that sort of 2011 period and sort of 2016 when it started to come off the top, you know? Mm-hmm. Interesting. In terms of, uh, I mean, so in 2011, you bought a, a you know, handful of properties. When did it start to ramp up to, you know, 30, 40 properties or whatever? At what stage were you at when, when that started to be the number? So I was involved in a, a few different entrepreneurial ventures and one of them was going reasonably well. And a, and a couple of the guys who were involved in that said to me, no, effectively, we haven't really got anything particular to do with the money. And a, a few months before that, an, an old business partner from years before in a completely different venture had called me up and said, look, we've just inherited about half a million quid. Um, we're looking to, to do something with it. We'd like to deploy it into property. Um, and we, we know you, we trust you. Um, would you fancy doing something together? So I, had, I said, well, you know, I'm sure we'll be able to spend that pretty quickly. We managed to find a pretty good block of flat, unbroken block of flats um, that was yielding quite well and, and sort of put that, that half a million into buying that cash and then went through the process of, of uh, improving them and refurbing those. Um, and then the other, these other guys who were, they were making some, some decent money at the time they wanted someone who could be a bit operational in a partnership and just buy reasonably well and grow a bit of a portfolio. So I became the, the executive, I became the sort of operational role really and learned, learned the ropes, learned a lot of what I said I didn't know there, learned a lot of that as, as I went along. And I was quite open and honest about not being, you know, the finished, not that I'm the finished article today by any stretch, but you know, not being the finished article at the time, but I'm, I'm honest and I'll try hard and I'll be transparent and I'm pretty good with numbers and budgets and spreadsheets. So that's, that's what I can offer. Um, and then, so worked through sort of buying on, just using agents to start with, because of course, when you're, you're relatively new, there's a lot of talk at network meetings about other ways of getting properties, but that was the, the way where the vast majority of the stuff changes hands, of course, in the UK on the open market with, with traditional agents um, and then got into auction um, and then sort of graduated a little bit further into dealing with some of the fast cash buyers, the wholesale wholesale operators that operate in the that, that obviously little niche of the market that exists over here, but really can deliver some deals if you get to work a good relationship with them. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you, uh, you know, your, your portfolio has grown now to such a size, but I mean, where would you say the economies of scale, of scale start to make sense? Because obviously 20, 30 properties, it's, it's still very management intensive. Where, what, what stage did you start to feel like this is starting to now become like an operational sweet spot? Yeah, really, really good question. I mean, I wouldn't even have used the phrase asset management back then at all. Um, it was about 40 where I started to hurt quite a bit because... I had a sort of part-time helper helping me manage the portfolio and I, I did a bit of a time audit and I was spending about 30% of my time on maintenance and queries and filling voids and stuff like that. Even though I was using, I wasn't using many agents to manage the tenancies. We were managing the tenancies, but of course they were still helping find uh, prospective tenants and things like that. And I looked at it and thought, well, hold on, 30% of my time on these tasks that are not 
high value tasks. Yeah. I've got to do something about this. So that was where I started to think, like you were just saying, in terms of economies of scale. And I definitely have some diseconomies of scale as well, which I'm happy to talk about. Um, and I started thinking, right, I've really got to get into agency. Why did I want to do that? Well, I wanted to understand about best practice in the industry. Who's going to know how to manage properties and tenancies any better than the professional agents was my thinking. And like I said, I've borrowed a lot of stuff from big business in the past. Why not, why not take that step? So I went and got myself trained and qualified as a letting agent. And I bought into, I made a big decision. The big strategic decision to make was, should I start one from scratch or should I try and buy, it, buy an existing one? Um, typical entrepreneur, I decided to do both in the end. Um, but bought into a couple, one of them worked out really, really well. One of them's not worked out so well, but managed to exit without too much uh, blood on the carpet. Um, and then started one, which is more of an in-house vehicle. So it doesn't have that sort of, uh, we haven't got loads and loads of different landlords. We haven't got big marketing budgets. We haven't got big flashy offices or anything like that. So it's more of a, it's more focused on the delivering returns side of things, which of course is where, where you need it to be on the commercial side. So um, I've, I've been lucky to get a fantastic business partner in the East Midlands who already had an agency that was set up as a proper business. He doesn't work in it day to day, doesn't need to. There's a system, there's a place for everything, everything in its place, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we've been able to do some, some good deals with that local presence that we've got there. And that, that's led to a number of advantages, you know, in terms of keeping costs reasonable, um, in terms of deals and, and visibility in the locale in terms of there's not much competition in that immediate area because there's not enough rooftops really for another another bit of competition so you know you know if you can find a little area or a little niche where you can dominate obviously there's there's significant advantage to that so there was uh, as soon as I sort of moved away from I'm not going to be doing the tenancy and property management in, in any way on a day-to-day basis I still want to know Obviously, I need to know the big stuff that's going on, but I still want to know the mechanics and the process and the legals um, so I can oversee that effectively. But as soon as I moved away from that, I started to get real economies of scale because that was when I then decided, right, the hard bit of this game, well, it's all hard, isn't it, really? But the hard bit of this game is finding the deals. That's what most of the people I would ever speak to would say. And so I thought, right, I'm just going to put 75 plus percent of my time into finding deals, but not just finding deals, finding people who can find deals. So I'm, I'm quite an accomplished relationship builder. That's definitely something I'd put near the top of my skill set. And I just went and asked questions and probably annoyed a few people, but took, took the time they would give me um, and then worked out as well, what would the business angle that could come out of this sort of stuff? So if, if you've got people who want to flip properties and they're finding five, six, seven, 10 deals a month, how could I get into their black book? Could they sell some stuff to me? Could we work something out such that it worked for them? So one of the ways I've worked really well with wholesale traders, for example, is when they haven't got to buy a property in, it's obviously saving them legal stamp, all the rest of it. We can execute very, very quickly because of the financial structure that we've got and wholesale bridging arrangements and all, all sorts of stuff like that. So once that relationship of trust is built, we can pay them a fee and what we're bringing off the table is the stamp duty, the lag, all, all those lagging costs that they don't want. They know now they can get a deal, they can give it to me, and then they can carry on. And, uh, 
they, it's like the used car salesman, you know, they can get a next car. They'd rather take 500 quid every day for a car than five grand every two months. And that's commercially very sensible, isn't it? So yeah. it, it, exactly that. So that was a real, that having the time to do that was a massive economy of scale because, you know, the, you make your money on the way in and all the rest of it. I don't truly believe, I think you make your money on the way and you make your money during the life of the asset and you make your money on the exit. That's, that's the reality. But you need to get good at, at all of those three things, really. Otherwise, you're going to leave a lot of money on the table at some point. Mm. So that was definitely my first economy of scale. But then, of course, the diseconomy start to creep in because instead of, oh, we've got one or two projects on the go and I can drive around and have a look. Now it's like, wake up one day, we've got 43 projects on the go. <laughs> and I can't, I can't get around any of them realistically because they're also, you know, some of them 90 minutes away, two hours away. So I need that sort of support team and all the rest of it to be able to make that work. Wow. Um, in, ter- in terms of, say, risk mitigation, uh, I mean, obviously, COVID-19, how, how has COVID-19 affected the business with furloughs and unemployment and all that kind of stuff? Well, obviously, on the trading side, it was a, it was a really tough time um, because we had, a, a, as an offshoot, a little auction buying business that would, you know, locate, appraise and purchase stock at auction, sometimes for us, sometimes for other investors who are clients of ours. And that basically became unviable overnight because auctions shut down. Not so much, we weren't worried by the online nature of it. It was the stock compression that just made all the prices just shoot through the roof. So staff in there had to go on furlough, um, property management wise. It was a, it was a funny one really, because that first, we're obviously sort of a year on as we're having this conversation, but that first lockdown, we were already doing quite a lot of stuff remotely. We've got quite a lot of remote systems in place. So we only took two or three days to go fully remote. We were able to do, you know, we could let properties without anybody seeing it with video walkthroughs and key safes. We were already set up to do that. And so that was all COVID compliant. And if people needed to move, I mean, obviously we were only moving people who needed to move, but people were phoning. And of course, a lot of the agents had pulled all of their stock so I, I got involved in the, the, that side of it. I didn't have a hell of a lot else to do because I couldn't find any deals or go to meet people. So I got involved in that side of it. And I was getting regular phone calls from people saying, I live with mum and dad. They're in their 70s. I really need a place. I'm looking at this place. And I was like, look, we can, we can do this. We can check you in. We can reference you. We, we can get this done in 24, 48 hours. You know, that's no problem. So we were just, we, we got to May last year and we had zero voids. And at the time, like you said, we'd have been at, you know, low 200s in terms of stock. And I can't remember zero voids for, for seven or eight years before that. So we, in a way, the challenge of, of COVID had sort of passed by then. Of course, until furlough and everything was announced, we were sitting there thinking, what's going to happen if everybody doesn't pay their rent? Well, because of the high yield strategy, we, one, of the first, one of the first pieces of analysis we did was we looked through the whole portfolio, we put in the LHA rates for every property and said, right, okay, assume tomorrow everyone's on housing benefit, right? The whole portfolio, what does it look like? Are we broke? Are we still cash flowing and all the rest of it? And yes, we were still cash flowing reasonably healthily. So, of course, there would maybe been a period of transition, which wouldn't have been very nice. But then by then, we, we were just starting to talk about doing things like, can we get people to pay six months, 12 months up front and give them a discount, give them 10, 15% off, get the cash in and start hoarding it. And then Rishi opened his magic suitcase and, you know, we were all we were all very happy about the furlough scheme that was uh, that was announced because 
you know, I found very, 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 we've, we've had nearly no problems that we wouldn't have had organically in a normal year anyway. Couple of tenants have swung the leg and, and used COVID as an excuse, but they would have been non-payers at some point in the future. Yeah. But luckily, these are the sort of, you know, 1% that slip through the net, you know, even though we've got a pretty good referencing process, it still happens. Um, and because, you know, I, I mean, my biggest commercial purchase to date was in December 2020. So that was obviously with full knowledge of full sight of what's going on with COVID. And that was why the purchase came about, you know, right. the, the other stuff, um, my tenants were quite lucky. They seemed to fit into the right sort of business rates band to get good grants. We worked out payment plans. Um, they're just sort of mum and pop businesses really. So uh, they got hit a little bit, but not had major arrears to deal with. Um didn't get into sort of supplying PPE and like, like some people did. I think I missed the boat on that one, definitely. But, <laughs> Jeez, but, yeah. that, yeah. <laughs> but it's not been, it's, it's, it's been pretty good from a um, yeah, from, from that sort of risk perspective. Well, vanilla buy to let, you know, what this is the whole point of being in the low risk. It's not sexy. It's pretty boring. But when that riskometer just goes through the roof, guys I know who are buying hotels with significant amounts of leverage, I'm not hearing from anymore. You know, it's mm. as simple as that. Whereas, if you've got and, and and the real sensible and big commercial and resi portfolio holders that I know, sensible amount of debt, sensible amount of cash on the balance sheet to weather a storm. Here's the storm. They've all weathered it reasonably yeah. well. Um, so it's kind of it's been a textbook crisis in that way, hasn't it? Really, it has. Yeah. Um, in terms of okay, so risk management uh, mitigation. I mean, I, I was listening to you when you spoke with Rod. You were talking about. You know, you're, you've, you've spread your risk by having different locations, different sectors, different demographics, different um, socioeconomic kind of stuff. And even you went down as far as your banking and your JV partnerships that you've actually you've you've de-risked that by not having such a dependency on one or two. Talk about that. Um, just is that just come from your wealth management, the, the, the idea of diversification? So certainly the diversification across sort of geography, employer, tenant type, socioeconomic, stuff like that. Absolutely. I mean, when when COVID hit, around about 25% of our rents were coming from social housing lease style arrangements. So much more of a commercial arrangement in a resi property, you know. And that 25% was, we were looking at that on, on the spreadsheets thinking, well, we know that's coming in. You know, that's that's pretty damn good news, actually. Nice anchor for the portfolio gave us a lot of confidence to continue uh, trying to build throughout what's been a really interesting sort of 12 months. Um, the, the bit regarding joint venture partners and, and banking and all the rest of it, banks, yes, I diversified because in 2008, I did get, because as I mentioned, I was doing significant amount of gambling transactions. You try doing that today through your personal bank account, they'll close you in 50 seconds. You know, I got an account closed by a big bank in 2008 and just thought, what the hell are these guys doing? You know, there was cash in there. Um, I spoke to someone very senior in the bank who happened to be a friend of mine. And he said, look, he said, you're not a profitable customer. And it looks like you're running a business through that account. So they're not interested in, in your custom, you know? And mm. I just thought, right, I better have. I went out that, that next week and I opened an account with every single bank and building society along the high street and just said, right, that's never going to happen to me again. I'm never going to let that dependency. So that, that lasts a long time in the memory. Mm. Um, Regarding the partners, I actually had a really good meeting with a consultant um, 
in about 2013, wouldn't it have been long after I bought that, that block of flats with the JV partner who'd inherited the half a million quid. And he said to me, he said, well, do you realise there's a big dependency here? What if this guy goes under a bus? What if he gets divorced? What if he goes bankrupt? And I just thought, blimey, I'm, I'm, I should be, I, I like to think I'm quite good on dependencies, but there was definitely a dependency there. And that sort of lit the fire to go out and work with more partners on different, you know, tweaking the strategy a bit and saying, well, we're not all going to step on each other's toes. I don't want a big fun fight for one deal. Yeah. Let's build a particular strategy that suits us. So I've got some JV partners who are looking 10 years in the future and they'd like to exit a company and they want completely hands off. They just want to leave it all to me. I've got some who want an active role in the analysis and the deal finding and and the legals and the operations and all that side of it. Well, that's brilliant because that takes some of that operational pressure away from me. And of course, they're they're at partner level, so they're incentivized properly. They they make the right sort of decisions. Um, I've got some who are in trading businesses who are who are happy doing what they're doing. I've got some uh, who who just want to want a, a wage because they don't want to take all these risks that the likes of you and I have taken over the years, you know. And so it, it all tessellates in quite nicely to if one partner wants to. I mean, we've got obviously got our shareholder agreements with different clauses in place and things like that, but we tend. I tend to try and standardize them. And then I also know that I've got partners behind who, if one partner did want to exit one business, I've, I've got people who probably like to buy straight in and just buy the shares. So I'm not dependent on any of those. I've got my own uh, investments, my own, my own assets and all the rest of it, such that no one person going rogue, going missing, changing their mind. Pulls the whole thing down, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And that was that was very much... From the one meeting with the consultant, I, I, I must I must credit him for that because that was a really it really stuck in my mind. I just thought I've got to dedicate some time to really. And now I look at the uh, I, I call it the Jose Mourinho, two world class players in every position if you can. So at least two solicitors, at least two mortgage brokers, at least two insurance brokers. And I always tell everybody that I do business with that that's the case. Not not in order to sharpen their prices, but just so they're aware. I mean, I had a, you know, you, you know, when you get to a certain level, banks want to interview you face, well, not the moment, but yeah. generally face to face. And, you know, one came down from Manchester and said to me, you know, well, what does it do? What does it take for us to get all our business? I said, it's just an impossibility. You'll never have more than 25% of my business mm-hmm. because that's my own personal, you know, I, I see the big, the bigger picture for me as a portfolio of portfolio loans um, because you just can't rely on one. Of, of, of all the people I've learned lots and lots off over the years, people have been in the game 30, 40 years. And the only thing that had ever gone wrong for them was post 08. 08 was okay. But post 08, when banks turned around and said, well, sorry, we've changed policy. Mm. We changed policy. We don't want your business anymore. You've got six, oh, general terms. You've got 60 days, 60 days to move a portfolio. Now, obviously, luckily, sensibly geared and all the rest of it, but still, just find in the bottom of a recession, find 50 grand for a load of valuations, you know, and, and try and negotiate a rate when there's only one one lender at the table and all the rest of it. And um, I just thought, right, that's not that's not happening to me. No way. No way is that happening to me. Wise move. One year ago, I listened to your interview and you, were, you had 200 properties. You, you told me just now you had you have 430 properties or something like that. So you've doubled the portfolio during COVID, which is pretty <laughs> remarkable. And I just want to know, I mean, 
looking forward now, do you, do you plan to continue growing like that? Do you see that there's just as many opportunities as there was in the last 12 months going forward? Well, there's a bit of a, there's a bit of a, you know, when you, it's a bit like buses, isn't it? You buy, you buy portfolios, you want to buy portfolios to come along at once. Um, one we were working on pre-COVID uh, from sort of August 19 that didn't settle until December 20. That was 91 units on its own. So that made a massive difference okay, yeah. to those figures. We don't have any 100 property portfolios in the pipe at the moment, unfortunately. We've got a few sort of sixes and tens and 20s and 40s, but no, nothing that big. And then another one was sort of 37 units wrapped up in one deal as well. So it, the, in terms of numbers of deals that we did, we did fewer deals in 2020 than 2019. Just with um, larger numbers, yeah. Just with larger numbers, yeah. But it's it's current. I mean, it's been quite tough at the moment with our auction stuff sort of kicked out. We would always organically pick up 15, 20, 25, 30 from the auction side that we picked up one or two. Uh, it really has been been that dramatic. And then the direct leads and the, the, the cash buyers and all that, their stock has, you know, they've, they've all started spending less money on um, on their lead generation and all the rest of it. And their stock shrunk to a, and this is the way it is in a, in a seller's market, isn't it, realistically? Mm. So it has been tough. And I don't think, I mean, as we go in March, I think we've agreed two deals in March and we're negotiating on a couple of others. Um, whereas we would we obviously expect to be doing, in terms of just deals rather than numbers of properties, you know, eight to 10 a month, realistically, in, in this day and age. So we really need that market to calm down a bit, to be honest, Gavin. Um, it's, I, I'm comfortable as long as the overall LTV is sensible. We're not overstretching. You know, we've still got places we can get cash from. Um, I'm releasing about 20 units later this year, which have got a lot of equity in them. So that just puts the balance. It was one of those situations where someone's made us an offer for a block of flats that we... Uh, we just can't refuse. It's, it's well above the market value. And I just think, well, look, I can replace that at market value. So yeah, I'd be crazy yeah. not to not to do the sale. Um, but of course, 20 units needs replacing, doesn't it? So I'll be, I'll be going, you know, the, the, the overall, I'm, I'm quite, I'd be very happy if we bought 50 a year and sold 25. Um, I'd rather do that than buy 25 and be cash poor because we're always putting money into stuff. Um, so it, it does, but the appetite is to get to 10,000. Just because, look, you've got to pick a number. I've been forced to pick a number by my one business partner. And I said, well, you know, is 1,000? No, I think we can do more than that. So what about 10,000? You know, can we do it in 10 years? Let's see. Let's yeah. see. Watch this space. Tell me that, I mean, looking at that now, I just, one of my, one of the things that I'm kind of watching because of my corporate kind of um, expertise is that there's a, you know, ESG, carbon footprint all of this kind of stuff this in the space that i work in that is a, ma a massive consideration these days have you seen any of that yet or is that not really coming into the picture yet i mean at the consumer level no but i totally agree with what you say and i think the the impact really on resi is at the epc level um, you know, you can the, the energy ratings, isn't it? Of that's that, right. The that. energy performance certificates. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, until sort of 2016, it was a non-issue. They then wanted 2018 onwards properties to be at standard of E or above. Well, there was only about 7% of properties that were below an E in the private rented sector. Some of those were exempt anyway. 
not really, some of those you change a couple of light bulbs for LEDs and you pass the certificate. So that, that's not a fair reflection. But of course, with this sort of rush now towards zero carbon, and of course, you know, big announcements from the government, 2030, no new petrols and diesels. Yeah. You know, it's 2021, it'll be 2022 before we all know it. This is incredible pace. And then this EPC consultation that happened at the back end of last year that's, that wants to see landlords get rental stock to C or above. Well, you've got an issue there because now instead of 7%, you're talking about 70%. That's and amazing. when you look at your standard Victorian terraces and the likes, they need some pretty extreme action sometimes to get above a D. You know, they need solid wall insulation, which a lot of areas don't like, which costs a lot of money, which is problematic if it's not done really well. Or they need solar PV. Sometimes they need both. Mm. Um, and, and 10K a property, you know, it's an obvious, obvious point to make. But if your stock is worth 100K and you've got to spend 10, that's a 10% investment. That's really significant. If your stock's worth 500K, it's, it's annoying, but it's 2%. It's not a big deal. So you're going to, you're going to, if you don't invest in your assets, they're going to depreciate ultimately. So, you know, I've got to see yet how, how are RICS going to treat that in terms of valuations? Um, how are mortgage lenders going to treat it? We've already had a bit of a teaser because some mortgage lenders are offering small discounts for, for energy efficient uh, properties. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think we're going to see more of that because they're being incentivized to do that by the Bank of England. Yeah. So that's I've big seen a, I've seen a half a percent here in 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 Ireland. Oh, uh, as much as that? Wow. So yeah. I mean, that's really significant. I've only yeah. seen sort of ten or fifteen basis points at the moment, but that's going to make people do stuff. Ultimately, isn't it? So gas and oil-fired central heating—that is something that is being banned here. And then at a certain point in the future, you'll have to replace existing with uh, with new products. And so that's a significant investment at some point in the future. And when you've got 400 yeah. properties in your portfolio, you start to kind of do the math and say, geez, this could be a significant expense. So it's definitely. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's interesting. My, 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 my strategy has always been to try and not buy anywhere where I really wouldn't want to live. And I sort of put some color around that by saying, I don't really want more than 40% of the stock in that area to be rental stock because I want there to be an established retail market. I want a retail market exit if I need to sort of move some of these on. So, I mean, I've just built an um, energy efficient uh, based on the passive house principles property for myself to live in out of the ground, although I'm not an out of the ground builder by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and that's got an A EPC and it's got an electric boiler. It's got no gas. Strangely enough, typically, although it takes months to get utilities connected up, while we were building, Caden actually knocked on the door and said, would you like us to do the gas? We could do it today for you. And I said, actually, you're okay. We're not, not using gas. Um, so the electric boilers have come a fair way, of course, um, and that might tessellate in with the solar PV. I think solar is the big, big, big opportunity. I'm not – make no bones about that. I think there's a lot of, you know, electric car chargers. Obviously, that brings different challenges in terraced houses yeah. with, with cars parked really, really – like you're getting in an Oxford or a town like that in, in England, you know, it's, it's incredible. Um, but I think, I think you're right. It, it's an interesting thought. And uh, to be honest, I'm thinking, I mean, we, we, we now look at, we have done for a while, look at deals in a slightly different way because we'll often start with the energy performance certificate and see what's going to need to be done in the future. But we're also, I am, I am to an extent taking a bit of a punt on there being a fairly significant grant scheme to, up, yeah. to upgrade some of this stuff. And, because when you look at the number, you know, we need to spend 
something like 20 billion on the UK housing stock in order to achieve these energy performance rates. Well, you know yourself, a bit of cladding comes up and uh, everybody wants the government to pay. So mm. there's going to be probably, you know, the, the, the way they've taxed uh, the, the fallout of Grenfell might be a, something they're going to continue with in terms of carbon offsets. I also think there might be an opportunity to do what they do in some other countries where there will be off-site solar farms and things like that, where you might be able to purchase some credits and stuff like that. So, yeah. I mean, it's difficult when you're in the unknown, of course, but because we keep sort of relatively sensibly geared, because we've got really good rent cover on our cash flow, um, we're, in, we're in quite good shape compared to your average private sector landlord. So I always think, you know, we're at the back of the queue to get mown down when something goes wrong on the bright side. So we do have that level of protection. But I know what, you, I know what you're saying. People who think, I used to see it all the time and think, why isn't this landlord just putting 10 or 15K into this property? It will be worth 25 or 30K more than they're going to sell it to me for. But then as you watch, as you get through the life cycle of properties and stuff, you understand people make a few sort of basic errors around that. But also, they, they, they can also look at these things and think, well, I, I bought that for 20K 30 years ago or 10K or whatever. I've made a lot of money out of it. I'm happy. I'm, I don't want the hat sell anymore. Mm. So I don't think we'll – I hope we don't get to that stage because we've got a bit more of a uh, long-lasting mentality. But – yeah, there's, there's, there's definitely risk there in terms of these these measures. And you've got to be able to, to to work through them and hopefully get a bit more notice than we sometimes get from, from respective governments when they decide suddenly it's the next big thing, you know? Mm, that's the thing. I'm, I'm wondering what's, um, you know, with, with COVID and the, it's very unpopular, a lot of the lockdowns and stuff. And you'd have to wonder what will that do to the, you know, the government's pro- prospects in, in the next election? and whether there's going to be a big fallout and all that. So it's interesting. We'll yeah. watch this space. Yeah. Um, I'm just moving forward to, to 2017, and I, I see you set up p- Partners in Property. And um, We were talking about networks earlier, and so this is your own network that you started from scratch. Tell us about your, your thinking in that regard. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I went to a few – I was talking earlier about you know networking and, and going out and meeting people, and I had a great affinity with the independent networking scene very early on. I found that you've got more experienced people there. Um, I found that they were much more generous with their time. And that I think that I then worked out that's because the more corporate side of the property networking side is just set up as this huge funnel to pour people into to sell them training courses, you know. Yeah. So that's fine. That's a separate business. That's not really networking in my eyes. Um, so I stopped going to those in 2011. I, I gave it about six months doing that and thought, this is not for me. I'll stick to the independent scene. And I was lucky enough to be invited to some really good private meetings that were not even marketed or advertised at all in sort of 2014, 2015. I met some really, really high level people there, who some of whom I still do business with today. And I just thought, what a shame that there isn't a network that, that has that sort of no agenda but can but will get these serious players to give some of their time to it and give it some airtime. And so uh, that, and that's how Partners in Property was born. We had, a, we had a great venue that someone was willing to give to us. We had a lot of support from people. And Sue Sims, my, my co-founding partner, um, Sue just had, you know, a really nice way about her, really genuine, really open and honest. Again, no, no agenda of her own. Works really, really super hard, really honest. 
what more could you want? So we, we co-founded Partners in Property. It was one, it was one little meeting back then in, in Birmingham or in, in, uh, out in Worcestershire, actually, it was a lovely venue. And then we got a couple of other partners involved who were also, you know, property heavyweights who could help us scale the business, give it more credibility. And we took it to London. We took it to Manchester, Southampton, Bristol. Now it's online, of course. Um, but we, again, you know, responded to the challenges, I think, with COVID, started putting out a lot more online content. And people needed that interaction. I know we all get a bit of Zoom lag and stuff these days, but if we hadn't had these video calls, some of the last year would have been really, really miserable, wouldn't it? You know, yeah. so so we've really sort of carried on with that and we've just set it up as what it is. It's a monthly membership community. There's no contracts, no tie-ins, no hidden agendas, none of that. We we have some sponsors in order to help keep the cost down because we've got some staff, obviously. Mm. Um, but the sponsors are all people that we do business with. Uh, they're not – I've had lots of – other. Really, really poor business sense in that department. So I had lots of people approach me and say, we want to sponsor you. And I've said, it's not really how it works at Partners in Property. I'll come to you. Sorry. This <laughs> <laughs> might sound a bit arrogant, but it's, it's kind of the way we, we, we I've been very conscious of, of being the gatekeeper. Uh, and you can never protect everybody, unfortunately, but we do, we try our hardest. That's all we can do, Gavin, really. Yeah. What would you say is the biggest shift in your mindset since you, you, since you got involved in property in 2011? Has there been anything that you've you know, completely changed direction and um, curious? I think, I mean, certainly when I, I, I bailed, I'm quite an early adopter, but I'm also quite early to get off a curve if I don't like the look of it. So one of the big shifts was when I moved away from HMO into just doing vanilla buy to let and then... HMO slash social housing HMO. That was a big sort of shift on the on the operational side. But one of the big keys that unlocked things for me were rather than spending all this time running around trying to raise money and give away big chunks of equity to people, also starting using bridging finance intelligently. That was a massive, massive game changer for me. And of course, let's not forget in the background between sort of 11 and 15, that interest rate was coming down and down and down. So suddenly you were getting bridging loans at 8 or 9% a year, which didn't look in any way unreasonable if you could do volume and, and you could you could condense that time it took to sort of flip deals around. So unlocking the bridging was a big one. And then also just from, from when I did my, my business administration masters, taking that strategic viewpoint on the whole of the business and saying, right, okay, where are the bottlenecks today? Where are the bottlenecks in three and six months' time? And what actions can we be taking now in order to minimize those bottlenecks? So when you come back to your sort of economies and diseconomies of scale conversation, so that what's going to stop? Where's the glass ceiling? Why is it there? Can we get through it? When we get to this point, what are we going to do? Usually we already know what we're going to do because we've planned it out. So I suppose that, that strategic side of, of application rather than House, quite cheap, got some cash, buy house, mm. rent, rent, rent to tenant, you know, a bit more. I'm not saying it's rocket science, anything that we do at this end, definitely. But we have tried to, to make it into a proper business strategy rather than just be a residential property landlord, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I see on your, on your LinkedIn profile, there's a reference to boardroom club. What's that? So I actually work with Rod in that. Rod and I were, were talking about this um, sort of late 2019, early 2020, we, we, we wanted to run a group. It's, <laughs> Rod will laugh, but 
we always say it's a bit like our therapy, really. We, we don't want to be property gurus, trainers, and all the rest of it, but we actually both really get a kick out of helping other people with their property businesses and their associated businesses. So we said, look, we'll make a promise to each other. We'll give this a try. We'll see how it goes. We won't do you know, loads and loads of it. We'll do one session, one group of up to 10 people or 10 businesses. Uh, then COVID came and we thought, ah, well, it's just not the right time, is it? Then COVID got about two months in and it was like, actually, it really is the right time because people are really, really want this stuff right now. So we thought, we'll give it a go. We started it in June uh, 20 and we were lucky enough to get seven people, seven businesses who are willing to, to be at our pilot bunch. And we built, we helped them build a 12 month strategic plan. Um, we worked through that with, so we worked with that all the way through from their sort of vision and mission which is not, Rod and I are not big on fluff, as, as I think you know, but we, we need to do that stuff and then get that all the way down to their focus areas and then objectives and KPIs. So we take that bit out of corporate, the stuff that works for yeah. you, and then we have that monthly Zoom session where we will be your non-execs, effectively. You're going to present your board statement and your KPIs to the board. You're going to present your management accounts. You're going to talk about your challenges um, and as a, as a bit of something, because Rod and I love the sound of our own voices as well, we do a little uh, one-hour slot in the middle, which is a deep dive into, so we've done some of the big deals that we've done. We've done systems and processes. How do we find deals? How do we appraise deals? Financing structures, all sorts, and really whatever the group, whatever the group wants to hear, really. And we've had some great, I mean, we did a great one on systems and process where it proved to me that the delegates in the group have got better systems and processes than Rod and I have got. So <laughs> fair place them. That's brilliant. And and do they pay for that or is that? Is yeah, no, they do. They do pay okay. for it. Yeah. They, they pay on a three monthly basis. We, we ask people for a six month commitment, um, and, but we want them to stay for 12. But like everything we do, we're not up for contracting and tying in. We want people to stay because we're delivering value. You know, that's yeah, it. Yeah. So, yeah we that's charge. A that time. It's, it's a, it's, it is honestly, really really fulfilling really enjoy it when we have a boardroom club day yeah it's a little bit like starting this podcast this was this podcast um was actually a lockdown project that i started and it's uh, and it was the feedback that i got was so rewarding that it's it's kept me going it's motivated me to kind of this is uh, we're, we're talking today on episode 48 and uh, and i haven't missed a week in 48 weeks now and it's and it's primarily because of how rewarding it is to kind of get the feedback from from the audience and stuff. Well, you know, I, I write a, a Sunday article that I post now and I've started taking it more and more seriously because of the feedback I've been getting. It's been so good. And now the Sunday supplement's a thing. And now if I think if I get to Saturday and I haven't written it, I think, oh God, I've got to do the supplement. It's like it's like being back at university or so. It's yeah. like I've got an essay to write for tomorrow and I've got to do it now. But it is it is really fulfilling and I really love it. I can totally relate. I've actually, I've, I've gone on, I've been on, up on Sunday night at 10 o'clock starting the podcast for Monday mornings. Upload. <laughs> uh, so I understand that. Um, Adam, we're coming to the end. I wanted to ask you just a question I asked pretty much everyone. First of all, the best advice you ever got. I think for me, and this is very much my personality type, you know, I think, um, if anybody, any listeners have done Myers-Briggs or any other sort of Jungian personality test, I'm an ENTJ, which is not uncommon for, for entrepreneurs. I'm INTJ. Right. So very, so not a lot of difference, really, because it doesn't really make a big difference to our proclivities that make a, a big difference in business. And 
someone who told me very, very plainly, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah. And that was a great bit of advice to me because I'm, I'm quite creative. I can get distracted by stuff. I, I know that. And that, that one, you know, when people have said to me before, oh, yeah, but we could just do this and this and this. And I was like, but look at how complex that, yeah, we can do that. But how complex is that compared to this deal that we just did or this deal or this? So remembering that, I think, has been, I, 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 I say that, you know, at least once a week to someone who's around me, just because we can doesn't mean we should. So definitely, that's my num- that would be my number one piece of advice to pass on. Keep it simple. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Good advice. K-I-S-S. Keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. And the last question, uh, Adam, is... Um, if you were, if you had an opportunity to speak to your twenty-year-old self, what advice would you give yourself? <laughs> Stop spending so much time in pubs and arcades playing fruit machines. Maybe um, no. I think I think what I would say is I, I'd have taken some of that money I had at the time and I was putting back behind the bar on alcohol or whatever, and I'd have put it in houses, of course, Gavin. So I'd have said, look, you know, build the portfolio you can as soon as you can. That, that there's so many cliches in property, but some of them hold a lot a lot of water, really. And one of them is, you know, the best time was 30 years ago, but the second best time is now. So yeah. uh, that, that's what I'd be saying. Don't over leverage, but do get in, don't sit on the sidelines. I see people all the time who have a fear of not doing the perfect deal. And that's so damaging because they can be two or three years. And then now at the moment, those people are turning around saying, oh, it's really hard to buy. And it's like, we've been talking about this since 2018. <laughs> you know, you, you, there have been opportunities since then. You, you've just got to... You've just got to take them. So I think, yeah, it would be the, I'm sure people have said it, but yeah, go back in time and buy more, buy more stock really, Gavin, realistically. That's it. Don't be the perfectionist. Um, Yeah. 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 Done beats perfect. Good friend of mine, Neil Martin says it that way. Done. And that's another really good little three word. Done, done meets perfect. Yeah. yeah. Done beats perfect. Sorry. Done beats perfect. Adam, it's been a great pleasure. Um, How can people find you if they want to reach out and connect with you? So uh, Partners in Property has got a, a very active Facebook page that people can follow. I've also got my own profile on there, Adam Lawrence, which you can, you can follow. And um, I'm also a moderator on the UK Property Traders uh, Facebook group, which has got about 33,000 people in now, alongside Rod and lots of other really great people. Um, and also on LinkedIn, Adam G. Lawrence on LinkedIn. So you can find me on either of those quite easily, Kevin. Great stuff. Well, Adam, I wish you the best of luck and I'll be checking in with you next year to see if you've got 800 or 1,000 properties under your belt. (laughs) (laughs) Really enjoyed that, Gavin. Thanks ever so much for having me on. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Adam. He's a really, really interesting guy. I found that conversation so fascinating. I could have gone on for a lot longer. And as I mentioned earlier, you'll, you'll you'll be able to find the video of that actual conversation over on my uh, YouTube, uh, my new Behind the Facade YouTube channel. But where the big focus is at the moment is my personal channel, Gavin J. Gallagher. Now, um, as always, I'll be putting links in the show notes um, so you can find the various groups that Adam talked about. Adam has his own network called Partners in Property and various other things. So I'll go and put a couple of different links for the stuff that Adam does down in the show notes. So that's it for episode number 48 of Behind the Facade. Thank you so much for listening. As always, my number one ask is just for you to leave a review or simply to share the episode with someone you think may benefit from it. 
In the show notes, you will find links to the various things discussed today. And if you have any questions or topics you would like me to cover in future episodes, the best place to connect with me is the Facebook group Behind the Facade community. As always, my social media handle is Gavin J. Gallagher. And that also goes for the YouTube channel, the new one, which I am kind of consider now my main project and I'm really working on getting the most value out to you guys. The videos, I'd love suggestions, any questions that you have. I mean, think about the kind of stuff that you'd like me to cover in seven or eight minutes. And I think the next video I'm gonna do is, do you need to go to college to become a property investor? I actually was asking my kids, you know, would you like to be investors? And they were saying, well, do you need to go to college to be a property investor? And I thought, there's a good video, let's do that. So that's the kind of thing I'm thinking about, guys. If you have any questions at all on just a topic, a question, something that you'd like my opinion on, I'm gonna make a video on whatever it is that you send in to me via social media or whatever. Lastly, you can stay up to date with the various events and challenges I'm working on by adding your name to my email list, which you'll find over at gavinjgallagher.com forward slash go. All right, folks, it's been a long one and I won't take any more of your time. I'll catch you all next week. Mm -hmm.